Our Old Testament text is the 67th Psalm. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, I noted that uh, analogies work the way they do because we have a creator who built into the fabric of the creation analogs, things that uh, very sort of intuitively can connect with us and communicate to us truths about God. <clears throat> Pardon me. And this uh, reference to a face that shines. See that in the first verse. I think we all kind of intuitively understand that a shining face is a face that is filled with favor. The word countenance, you might have heard the term, refers often to a face. Uh, it literally is derived from the word contain. So there's something about a face that can contain either favor or something else. So if I said to you, his countenance darkened. Well, you'd kind of get the notion, I think, that, well, the guy's not happy. <laughs> His countenance is darkened. Maybe he uh, doesn't favor someone that he's addressing or looking at. Radiance, though, often brings to mind what? The sun. We look up and we see something that's so bright can blind us if we don't uh, have eye protection, if we keep looking at it too long. Sun, of course is uh, something that the earth derives its uh, life and nourishment and strength from. If it wasn't for the sun, there wouldn't be any life. Uh, it's because the sun shines that uh, we are warmed and fed. There's obviously photosynthesis. Uh, the crops and the fields that uh, are nourished by the sun in turn nourish us, Right? And then the earth, have you ever considered this? When you think about fossil fuels, for example, the earth is sort of like a battery. Those fossil fuels uh, store the energy that it, they uh, have received from the sun. So the earth owes uh, what we uh, make a living with regard to our relationship to the earth, owes its uh, life-giving powers to the sun that's in the sky. And it's really, in a very similar way, I would say, almost perfectly, in a, in, a, in a sort of analogical way, the way we are nourished by God's favor. When God favors us, we enjoy life. Uh, we have life, first of all, but then we can actually enjoy the blessings that uh, we can know in life when we enjoy God's favor. And so here, uh, David uh, says, uh, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And we all get it. We all get it. Now, um, this is intended to serve a purpose, though. Did you notice there in verse 2 that uh, the, 
the reason why this is a good thing is not just simply because it's a good thing on its own terms, but because it also helps uh, folks who don't know uh, know something that they really need to know, and that is that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. So God's favor is something that uh, is to be enjoyed, not just selfishly, not just in a self-interested way, but for the sake of other people. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind with regard to light and the sun, of course, is that there's a, an analog, not just to God's favor, but also to truth. When someone says, I've seen the light, uh, what they mean is, uh, I get it. I see what you're talking about. I understand now. I've seen the light. There's a relationship between light and truth, in other words. And uh, when we think about truth, we don't think about, you know, darkness, and we don't think about uh, an environment in which we can't see where we're going. We instead think about a setting in which we can actually see what uh, is around us, and we can navigate our way, and we can find our way. We can find our way. This brings to mind something from Plato uh, in the Republican Book 8, there's something known as the myth of the cave. Have you ever heard of the myth of the cave? It's a fascinating uh, little image there, and it's really had a profound influence on how we think about truth in Western culture. So here's how it goes. I'm going to summarize it really quick. So uh, in an attempt to explain how we come to know the truth about anything, uh, Plato says, and actually through the person of Socrates, because it's a Socratic dialogue after all, so it, there's, this, there's this cave, and there are these people who are in the cave, and they're chained to posts, and they can't turn around. The, the chains are just so constricting that they can't even turn their heads. And in front of them, there's a wall, and on the wall, there are shadows, shadows cast by a light that's being, uh, well, it's blazing behind them, but they're more interested in the shadows. They don't really know how the shadows are cast and so they spend all of their time talking about the shadows. They argue with each other about the shadows. They name the shadows. Then one day there's a guy who kind of realizes, you know what, I'm kind of tied up here. If I work myself out of these bonds a little bit, I might be able to see what's going on behind us. And he does. And he turns around and what does he see? Well, initially he sees a light that hurts his eyes. But when his eyes adjust, he notes that there's a fire in the, in the cavern, and that there are people who are carrying objects on their heads, and what he thought was real was actually a shadow. They were just shadows, and he sees that what's going on behind them is more real than what he had thought was real before. Now, uh, in the joy that he experiences with this newfound knowledge, he decides it would be really great to share the news with everybody uh, that I'm tied up with. And then Socrates notes, but those folks were not at all pleased to learn <laughs> what he had to tell them. In fact, they persecute him and drive him out of the cave. And when he gets out of the cave, what he discovers is that there's a whole world outside and there's a great light in the sky. And what Socrates or Plato, however you want to think of it, what, it, what he says is that that's the way truth is. There's a sense in which when we're ignorant, we're kind of bound. We don't know what we really should know. But when we see things as they truly are, there's a kind of light. 
And what Plato or Socrates says is that sun that's outside is the good in itself. Now, Plato um, was a real bright guy. I think we can all uh, concede that. But there's something that Plato didn't know that's really important. And that is the good has a name. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, what? I am the light of the world. He also said, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Logos of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. This is something that's important to know and something that we know. And something else to take from this particular little exercise that I've been sort of engaged in is that when we think about God and we think about truth, when we deal with the subject of God, the doctrine of divine simplicity informs us that we can never separate the truth of God from the beauty of God. We can never separate the truth of God from the goodness of God. It's a package deal. You get them all at once. So the truth that we're talking about here is not just simply that abstract notion that sometimes people, you know, refer to when they're talking about things that are true, like facts. No, we're talking about not just true in a sort of, you know, sort of abstract, plain, unadorned sense, but in its fullness. The truth is always good, always moral, always beautiful. So we want to know the truth of God because it also contains the goodness of God and the beauty of God. Now, one of the things that's wrong with us is we're afraid that if we know the truth, we'll find ourselves, well, in the wrong. And if we find ourselves in the wrong, then we fear punishment because we're in the wrong. But if we remain in the darkness, as 1 John chapter 1 informs us, we find that uh, sin remains. But if we step into the light, as he is in the light, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess those sins. So this is the paradox. We're afraid of stepping into the light because we're afraid of punishment. But it's only in the light that we know the goodness and the beauty and the grace and the favor of God. When we step into the light and confess our sins, we enjoy the favor of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It can change your life. It changed my life. That's gospel. And it's because of this uh, marvelous uh, truth that uh, we have something to share with the world. So note here in this psalm that uh, the nations of the world are called upon to praise the Lord. Look at verse 5 and verse 3. There we see, let all the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. And again in verse 5, let all the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. In other words, knowing the favor of God will provide an excuse or a reason for people to praise the Lord. One of the things that Jesus noted, and he noted this in the Sermon on the Mount to make a point, he said, you know, God shines his sun on the just and the unjust. In other words, 
bad people as well as good people enjoy God's favor in an ongoing way. And then Jesus, drawing on that truth, says we should be gracious to those who are not gracious to us. Right? We should love those who hate us. We should bless those who persecute us because that's the way God is. God is good to everyone. Now, uh, since he's gracious to all, and, that, uh, and, and, it, that, and because that informs uh, our own sort of regard for other people, um, what occurs as, you know, as a result of that is that we are without excuse. Whether we know God uh, as Savior or not, we know God as our benefactor. And this is what the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. He says in that passage of Scripture that uh, God is someone that we know because we have evidence of his eternal power and his wisdom through the things that he has made. We have the ability, the Apostle Paul says, to see the invisible God through the visible things that he has made and the things that we can observe in the world. So the goodness of God, the fruit of the land, how we're taken care of, our health, all of these things are reasons for us to bring our worship to God, to thank him. I remember years ago, I, I was a professor of philosophy. Some of you know that. And I remember I was uh, teaching a class. It was an introductory class to, uh, to philosophy. And, uh, you know, the students all knew that I was a minister. You know, so not only was I their philosophy professor, I was a minister. And there was a woman in the class who said, uh, I can't remember the context of the conversation or the, or the question, but she asked me, she said, I've got a son. And uh, I said, well, great. And she said, um, why should I take him to church? I guess she thought that was a preacher stumper. Um, I said, well, to say thank you. And then she said, what if he doesn't feel it? I said, it doesn't matter. When you have a little kid who's received something good from somebody, what do you do? Do you just say, hey, don't worry about it. Just take it and run. Don't have any gratitude. Don't say anything in response. Just take it and run. No, what do you, you, you know, every good parent says, and what do you say? What you need to do is take that kid to church so that child can learn to say thank you to God. And uh, she never asked me another question after that. So we live in a world where the creation itself speaks to us. We, we can refer to this as natural revelation. When we look around and we see that we are in a world full of good things that sustain our lives and consequently we depend on, um, we can say that there is a God and he's ordered things well and we owe him gratitude. We owe him worship. We should thank him for the good things we enjoy. But natural revelation has its limits. And the reason uh, natural revelation has its limits is because uh, as we look around and see the creation, one of the things that we can't know just based on that is whether or not God will forgive us for our sins. Uh, in other words, uh, creation is... Uh, something that we can look at and we can see that there are standards and there are, 
are reasons to thank God for the good things in our life. And we can, when we fail to thank him, feel guilty. But what assurance do we have that God will forgive us if we come to him and ask for forgiveness? This is where revelation is absolutely central. We can't, we can't know that God will forgive us just based on looking at the world that he made. We need God to enter into the world and reveal his favor to us and his willingness to forgive us. And that's what we have in the Christian faith. God the Son is God, enters into creation so that we can see the glory of God and so that he can pay for our sins and rise for our justification. And because of that revelation, we can know that God is not only good in the sense that he gives us the things that we need to live, he's so good, he gives us the things we need to live again, to have eternal life. So that's what uh, David is driving at here. He says, let me just remind you, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. It sounds very selfish, doesn't it? Us, us, us. But the purpose in verse 2 is that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations, not just the Hebrews. That's what we see at work here. You can think about it this way. When I was in school, I went to public school. I know. Feel bad for me. It, was, it really was as bad as they say. But anyway, I remember every once in a while... You know, you'd be picked out, and you'd be brought before the class in order to demonstrate what you know. Has anyone else experienced this? Chris, come up and show us how to, you know, do this problem in trigonometry. I was like, ah, ah. <laughs> and you'd come up to the front of the class and uh, display your ignorance for everyone to see. <laughs> anyway, think about the election of God's people in the Old Testament in those terms. God wants to demonstrate something to the world through them. God is using them as an object lesson, something that we can all look at and learn from. If you behave in this way, this is what happens. If you behave in this way, this is what happens. Wow, very instructive. If you sin, you're punished. (laughs) If you come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven. The reason why God makes a people for himself, setting them apart, treating them in the ways that he treated them, was not because he loved them more than you. He was using them so that he can demonstrate that he loves you and has a plan for you and that his standards apply to everyone, not just to them. You see what I'm getting at here? That's what we have uh, being addressed here. Be gracious to us so that we can be an object lesson. And this is why your testimony is important. So when you share with other people what God has done for you, you're providing information that they, they, they wouldn't have any other way. You're giving, them, you're giving them something, some data points that they would never arrive at by just looking at the weather patterns and the seasons of the year and the food on their table. You have something to tell them that gives them some insight into the goodness and grace of God. 
and they need to know it. They need to know it. So that they, in turn, can call out to the same God who has saved you. Right? That's the purpose. And by the way, that's the, that was the plan from the beginning. If you look at God's call to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse three, or verses 1 through 3. It, by the way, let me just take you there. So let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 12 and look at the call. And, uh, you know, we might assume that, well, the only person that uh, God had in mind at this point was Abram and maybe his family, but that's not the case. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Okay, stop. Sounds like it's all about Abram, right? But you've got to keep reading to get to the good part, the part that includes you and me. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We were on God's mind when Abraham, at this point just Abram, was called. This has been the plan from the start. So God reveals his gracious character through the natural world, but also through our personal histories and the history of his people. Now, at the very last, or the, in the very last verses of this psalm, we, we read these words. Verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the earth, uh, I'm sorry, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, at one level, this sounds as though uh, David is referring to the harvest, that uh, the increase that the earth has yielded is, you know, what you see outside when you're driving through, say, Kansas uh, in uh, late August or something. Fruit of the field. And certainly that's true. But uh, whenever we think about analogies in Scripture, Things can be true in two senses. Here's something for you to think about, reflect on a little bit. And this is where uh, the parable of the sower comes in that I had Leon read. God is a farmer, and uh, you are the field. Think about it this way. Adam. Have you ever thought about why he was called Adam? Well, we know that he, he, his body was formed with the soil, uh, from the soil, and that God breathes his life into him, uh, granting him life. But the word, or the name Adam, is based on the Hebrew word for, guess what? Soil. In other words, he really was an earth man. He was dirt. <laughs> and uh, Jesus says the same of you and me. You are dirt. Remember the parable? You know, you've got the different kinds of soil. You have the, the seed that's sown. The seed, of course, is God's word. And you are the soil that receives the seed. What becomes of the word when it's sown in your life? What kind of soil are you? Are you shallow soil, stony soil, thorny soil, or good soil? 
Well, the proof is in the fruit. What does your life say? How uh, does it, you know, has God's word uh, brought about the fruit in your life or hasn't? The word parable is a fascinating word. Have you ever thought about the word parable? I think we all know what the word parable means when, we, when we're thinking about the parables of Jesus. These are stories, right? But the word itself has an interesting etymology. Parable, para, alongside, balo, where we get the word ballistic, means to throw. So the story itself is seed, something that's been cast into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives by Jesus. What kind of fruit does it produce? Has it made the change that it should make? Are you different for having heard God's word? In other words, there's a, there's a harvest that God expects to reap from us, our lives. When we think about uh, the, the, the last harvest, we're thinking about, we think about Judgment Day. And when we think about that, scriptural, scriptural images, you know, the angels going out and bringing in the sheaves, right? We are the harvest. Some of us will produce a great deal, some less so. As long as you produce something, <laughs> you're good. But those who don't produce, what happens? The bundles are thrown where? Into the furnace. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. That's why you should fear the Lord. You know, Pentecost, when we think about the first sermon that was preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, again, we kind of miss something that's really important to know. Pentecost was the feast of the first fruits. In other words, it was the festival in which the early sort of returns, you could say, were gathered and consumed. Guess what? The harvest has already begun. The harvest, first fruits, have been followed by many, many other lives being brought into the kingdom. And hopefully that's true for you. So when we think about all of this, what do we have to show for it? Well, that's the point. We should have something to show for it. The earth has yielded its increase. We look around and we see the fruit of the soil all around us. You know, I was just driving through some beautiful countryside in eastern Oregon with my wife yesterday, and we saw, you know, the fruit of the land, the results of God's favor, the way the sun has nourished the soil, and we see that as a result, we'll be nourished by those crops. In the same way, we should think about ourselves. Are we the first fruits of we produce the fruit that God is looking for. If we have, if the earth has yielded its increase, as it should, then we will be blessed and we'll be a blessing. And with these things in mind, David ends his psalm by saying, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Every people, from every tribe, every nation, because God has been good to us all. And he has sent his son to save the elect from every nation. With those things in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us fruitful. Help us to will and to do according to your good purposes. Help us, Lord, give people a reason to thank you for your goodness to them and to us. In Jesus' name, amen.